Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. We've reached November 2021. It's November the 1st. Hello from a, an unseasonably wet, rainy San Francisco, rather chilly here today. Um, the world seems to be facing what we might think of as um, a moment of truth in all places of Glasgow in Scotland, part of the United Kingdom. Um, that, of course, is where the COP26 event is taking place. Um, according to the Washington Post, it's a high-stakes climate change summit. Um, and Joe Biden suggesting that in, in, in language that only Biden seems to be able to articulate, this is the decisive decade, whatever that means. Whatever seems to come out of Joe Biden's mouth seems rather vague. Uh, some are less vague. Uh, Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister, warns of uncontainable social anger if leaders fail on climate change targets, which are supposed to be the, the issue at this international conference. Um, the UN uh, head uh, says that either we stop it or it stops us. Typical UN speak. Angela Merkel, who's usually a little better on these sorts of things, unfortunately, she's departing the world stage, calls for the introduction of global carbon pricing, which seems a lot more concrete than what Biden or, or, or Johnson is saying. Um, and as the Financial Times says, uh, COP26, a moment of truth. Uh, their, their subtitle is country targets um, at UN climate talks must be much bolder to keep to the 1.5 centimeter uh, uh, centigrade uh, uh, increase in temperature alive. And we might not be here if we don't do that uh, in November 2050. Um Meanwhile, the signs from COP26 aren't particularly good. China, one of the largest um, emitters, um, in fact, they're, they're, they are increasingly the largest. And you can see from the chart for people watching, uh, their, their, their chart is on the up. Everyone else seems to be flat. China isn't really even there. And meanwhile, the old timers have shown up. Prince Charles, a particularly useless person. John Kerry, another useless one. Um, and meanwhile, the, the, the Europeans are worrying that the rising costs of climate action is stirring at anger. The Times, New York Times reminds us uh, that the yellow vests in France were triggered, the political radical, I'm not sure whether it's left or right populism of of, of, of the yellow vests in France was triggered by opposition to legislation on climate change. Um, even CNN seems to be getting it wrong. There was an interesting piece that uh, CNN was mocked. There's Wolf Blitzer, another example of the old guard, suggesting that, um, that COP26 was taking place in Edinburgh <laughs> rather than Glasgow. So this moment of truth as too often in our world these days, seems to be less than truthful. I have a very truthful man on the show today, Stan Cox. He's the author of a new book. He's 
very much a man of the left, on the progressive left. Uh, the book comes with an introduction uh, by Noam Chomsky, uh, The Path to a Livable Future, A New Politics to Fight Climate Change, Racism and the Next Pandemic, as it happens with a kind of uh, Marxian or Hegelian uh, uh, paradox. The book is out today. It's not a book about Coke 26, but uh, Stan is talking to me from his home in Kansas today. Uh, and, and perhaps we might begin, Stan, by, um, by your thoughts on this latest international spectacle, charade, perhaps circus. Uh, am I being unkind? Or is it just another example of international farces? Uh, Andrew, can uh, I, I need to um, make a note that the foreword is by Zenobia Jeffries Warfield. That um, uh, the, it was my book. From oh, last I apologize. Year. I don't know why that was uh, <laughs> that was a terrible error. Apologize, Dan. Um, but um, yeah. Uh, but, yes. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, so the foreword is by Zenobia Jeffries uh, Warfield. Um, uh, but uh, you, you are a longtime associate of Chomsky and you've done a lot of writing with him. And I'm, he's blurbed the book and he's a big supporter of what you're doing. So Stan, on to Coke 26. What, what are your thoughts? But I think you uh, characterized things very well, um, Andrew, regarding the... the uh, tepid action in, in, the, in the face of um, what really is an uh, existential threat. In, in the past couple of years, I think largely um, due to the, uh, the pandemic um, and to the, um, the uh, groundswell against um, systemic racism in, in this country and around the world, that um, that both of those uh, problems and climate all seem to be kind of bursting into the, the world's consciousness um, all at once. Um, and, but despite that, the um, the uh, so-called solutions that are being proposed are all um, totally inadequate. And uh, with climate, it's especially um, it's especially notable. You noted that uh, probably the most specific thing anyone is saying was from I believe Angela Merkel about a, a carbon tax, um, carbon pricing. Um, that is, it's pretty bad when that's the most specific thing that's being talked about because it's way too late to um, do what we need to do uh, by um, taxing carbon. The, the, neither that nor any of the other um, proposals um, for what to do about climate are going to guarantee that the use of fossil fuels is driven down to zero within a decade, which is now what's being talked about. We can build um, hundreds of millions of electric cars or um, you know, pave over um, vast acreages of the earth with uh, solar arrays, and that's not going to get rid of, um, of fossil fuels. And even uh, making them more expensive isn't uh, going to, and it, and it will produce reactions like the uh, Yellow Vest uh, movement. Um, 
But I'm curious. Um, we'll get to the book in a, in a no. minute, um, Stan. But uh, I'm curious as to your thought on the yellow vests and the idea of a populism on the right. I, I think that Trump is another example of this. <laughs> a populism on the right that has tapped working class anger um, against the um the, the the language of um of 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 the climate community um you're talking to me from kansas of course uh which um has which tends to be uh, a, a state which um populism has a long history of a populism both of the left and the right. We've we've talked about it in some detail on the show. What's your take on why movements like the Yellow Vest seem to be so skeptical of carbon taxes and uh, and other economics associated with saving the planet? I, I think it's this um, idea, which in you know this country, it's stronger in this country than anywhere. This uh, idea of individual freedom, which is you know drives the uh, uh, whole uh, debate about guns, about um, what to do. Um, yeah, but the yellow to... vests are in France, not in Kansas. <laughs> right, right. But they, I mean, they're expressing the the uh, the same thing. Um, and um, but and it's it's just a little more uh, virulent here. But people say, you know, what has been proposed for climate. Um, things like the carbon tax, even if the um, tax is going to be rebated in equal per capita amounts, the so-called fee and dividend, even the, those things, people see it as um, you know, the government is, is using climate as an excuse to take my uh, money, um, et, et cetera, when if instead what the, if the policies were going to um, uh, take out the fossil fuel companies? Everybody hates the oil and, and gas and well, coal I don't companies. Know everybody, uh, <laughs> Stan. I well. wish everyone. I, I wish it was everyone. Um, Stan, what are your thoughts? We we had Thomas Frank, of course, who wrote "What's the Matter with Kansas" on the show yeah. last year. Um, he has a particular take on the history of American populism. Are you in his camp? when it comes to resurrecting um, working class American populism. Uh, your book, The Path to a Livable Future, A New Politics to Fight Climate Change, Racism and the Next Pandemic, is it's a short book. It's really a pamphlet in some ways, a polemic um, about this new politics. You're not... You're, you, the, the the book acknowledges that we have a climate crisis, that we have a racism crisis, that we have a pandemic crisis, and it's a book about politics. Are you in Frank's camp when it comes to the need to resurrect a twenty first century kind of working class populism? I'm um, I not not exactly. I um, I think we need. Um, we we need a, a, a grassroots uh, uprising for sure, but I think we um, we have to be looking for, as an example to um, the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the um, environmental justice movement, which has been 
around in in the U.S. for um, many years since the seventies. Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of Thomas Frank. I'm not sure <laughs> he would be against Black Lives Matter. You make Black Lives Matter very central. You see it not just as an important political event, but symbolic of a new kind of politics. What's so? Im- what's the big deal about Black Lives Matter in terms of this? new politics to not just fighting racism, but also climate change in the next pandemic? It's, um, when, when you look at the, um, who is um, hurt most by, um, uh, by the uh, disruption of the global climate, it is um, largely in, in, in this country and elsewhere, marginalized communities, uh, uh, people of color, um, and, and and that's a, a long time uh, historical thing. The um, going back to in, in say in American cities to the um, uh, redlining of cities in, in which uh, uh, largely uh, black or Latino communities were um, not uh, were denied uh, affordable mortgages. Those places today. Um, it, there's been some studies showing that those parts of cities today in the summertime are um, seven to 12 degrees hotter. Um, yeah, there's no doubt Jerry, about but, that. We had the um, the excellent Miami-based journalist, Mari, uh, Mario Alejandro Ariza, on the show last year, writing about what the climate crisis will do to a place like Miami and particularly to the poorer people of Miami. So I think mm-hmm. the scientists and the people on the ground are very much in your camp. But, you know, we're reading your book, Stan. I, I, I like your politics. I like where you are. But how do you get from Black Lives Matter, which tends to be a fairly spontaneous demonstration against police brutality in America, to saving the planet. It's not entirely clear. You lay out some very, very radical solutions like nationalizing um, the energy business, not only in the United States, but around the world. How do we get there from from spontaneous demonstrations like Black Lives Matter to such profound structural reform? I I think it's... going to take not just um, you know, Black Lives Matter style um, uh, protest as, as we've seen over the past couple of years, but uh, certainly that, but merged with um, um, extinction rebellion um, type action on, on climate and uh, the, uh, the uh, mutual aid movements that uh, have uh, grown up that uh, that in in uh, Puerto Rico, um, for example, where they it started with the um, the uh, debt crisis uh, that started a few years ago, and the uh, the imposition by the the U.S. federal government of of this severe austerity. Then there was Hurricane Maria and the, and the maltreatment of the island there, and and then COVID and and this uh, you know, movement or, or island-wide, these movements toward uh, uh, mutual aid that are also very politically um, uh, sophisticated. Uh, and the same thing uh, happened with uh, Occupy Wall Street. Um, yeah, but all, uh, Occupy Wall Street fizzled out and, and the examples but, you gave are interesting, <laughs> but they're not exactly 
the but, mainstream. They're in mm-hmm. small countries. Well, uh, you know, Occupy Wall Street, but it didn't go away. It morphed into Occupy Sandy, which did an amazing work in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. And then into, uh, there's been a lot of uh, COVID um, um, relief for that. And the, I, I um, take your point, Stan. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not minimalizing the impact of, no. of, of Occupy, but the reforms, well, they're more than reforms, the radical restructuring of the world that you're calling for in the book, nationalizing the energy industry, essentially doing away with the nation state and establishing no. a, a planet-style government, that, that will that come through Occupy style <laughs> movements? Is that realistic? Well, you, you know, the, the, this seems it, it sounds very um, exotic for uh, industries to be nationalized and for um, the material resources, industrial resources going going into the economy to, for their allocation to be planned to go not to production solely for profit, but uh, production for meeting human needs for everyone. That's You think, well, how could we have a, an economy like that? Well, 80 years ago, we, we did. The, during um, World War II, when you know, much of the resources of the country had to be walled off for um, military production, the civilian economy became uh, a, a very um, highly planned operation and um, to the extent of uh, having uh, fair shares rationing as a, as a response yeah, you, to uh, you, that this idea of a path to a livable future. And this was the Chomsky piece you wrote with uh, he wrote it with you. Um, you talk about enough is enough and you call for essentially uh, a redistribution of our economic wealth. I'm curious uh, later today, Stan, uh, I'm talking to the Canadian journalist Joanna Chu, an expert on China. She has a new book out called China Unbound, A New World Disorder. The Chinese who aren't at, who aren't in Glasgow, which again underlines the fact that how effective can this be if the Chinese don't even show up? The Chinese seem much more able and efficient and willing to confront some of these issues but of course, China is an authoritarian state rather than a democracy. Um, are the kinds of reforms you're talking about in the path to a livable future, are they more uh, viable in a system, an authoritarian system like China than a, a sort of a dysfunctional democracy like the United States? Well, we may uh, actually run that experiment soon if we keep moving toward authoritarianism in, in this country. <laughs> um, but I'm afraid it's not going to be the kind that would uh, would bring us any uh, uh, climate sanity. And I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, China, there, you know, there's a lot of talk. They talk a good game about um, ecological civilization and so forth. But as your graphs show, they're um, they haven't slowed their uh, their emissions, and uh, and they haven't um, start. And it's not their fault that they haven't stopped um, manufacturing a whole whole lot of superfluous um, goods and, and and stuff we don't really need. But that we we we're such uh, ravenous consumers that we um, are, are shipping them across the Pacific every day. 
and, and those emission, you know, they're producing the emissions and then we're buying the stuff and throwing the trash away. So we're, we're kind of in a codependent um, relationship and that, that's where a lot of their emissions are coming from and they're, they're not uh, turned down. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and the, um, as you imply, the, the kind of system that exists in China is an authoritarian capitalism. In America, it's a dysfunctionally democratic <laughs> capitalism. Your book seems to suggest that capitalism is pretty much done. It doesn't work anymore. There's a blurb from Jason Hickel, the UK-based thinker on economics. Um, he's been on the show. Uh, the headline when he was on the show was The Planet Needs Saving from Capitalism. Uh, we had Tim Jackson on the show recently. He has a, an interesting new book out, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. We had Yanis Varoufakis, the ex-foreign minister, uh, ex-economic minister of Greece on the show, who's written a science fiction book on alternatives to what he calls techno-feudal capitalism. In your view, um, Stan, is, is capitalism pretty much done? Do we need um, to get beyond it? It's simple, simple as it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, yeah. And we're, um, I think uh, all of us, the, the folks you mentioned, all, all of us are, agree with that. We, um, and it, it's just, we, we can have a livable planet or we can have continued, um, continuous, uh, un, uh, unbounded uh, wealth accumulation, but we can't have both of those things. Now, um, uh, and, and Jason Hickel and I, especially, I think we um, agree that um, the, the first thing, the most important thing we need is this um, restriction of the material throughput of society, of ener energy and resources. That um, will inevitably lead to a, a slower and in fact a reversal of economic growth which uh, will not be uh, a bad thing we, you know, 99 percent of the people of earth are not benefiting from the rapid growth that we've been going through it'll mean we need to meet um, human needs but it's uh, and and then if you have um uh, inadequate, uh, according to uh, capitalism, inadequate growth. Capitalism is not a, a creature that can live in captivity, and um, you you will not have capitalism anymore. It's going to be another type of economy that's required to uh, deal with it. Stan, there's an interesting debate going on. I think implicitly, at least uh, on my show, between people like Hickel, Jackson, Varoufakis, and yourself against people who I think believe that the system can be reformed. They believe in something they call social capitalism. We had the uh, Anglo-Israeli entrepreneur, Ronnie Cohen, on the show last year, suggesting that the architecture of 21st, cap 21st century capitalism can be reformed. Last week, I had Michael Lennox on the show from the University of Virginia. He doesn't believe much in government, but he does believe that the global economy can be decarbonized through initiatives from um, corporations. Should we give up on corporations too? Can we reform them? Is, is social capitalism just a screen to enable capitalists to make more money and ruin the planet even more? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, 
we um, we would be uh, really foolish to believe that um, these um, people who uh, enriched themselves to the tune of trillions of dollars during the pandemic when uh, everyone else was um, suffering or going to, and the people who got us into the climate crisis in the first place are, are going to be the, um, the ones to uh, lead us out. I think the, these people who are um, saying this, they think, well, there are only two alternatives. We can either have um, you know, corporate capitalism or we'll uh, have to be like the, the Soviet Union. And, and, and we getting rid of capitalism doesn't mean getting rid of dem democratic uh, forms. But do we have a model here? Are you are you suggesting the model is really the New Deal? The model is a um, a democratic, perhaps socialism, uh, akin to some of the the Scandinavian or even the German model. Or is that enough, Stan? That's in the right direction, but it's not enough. I mean, it's been pointed out many times that um, FDR's New Deal. The, the fundamental aim of that was to save capitalism from itself and, and preserve capitalism. And, and, it, and they gave it uh, a good try. Um, there, there was the problem with um, um, ra systemic racism within the, the New Deal uh, programs. Um, but you know, for, uh, at least for white people, they, um, it was, um, it did save the the country from even uh, deeper misery, but um, it was not the New Deal that ended the Great Depression. It was the buildup for World War II that did that. That's not not to say that that that's the way to um, mm. it, it help the country, but it did kick off. It did empower workers. Um, more and uh, in fact, um, we're we're kind of seeing another uh, gain in uh, labor's uh, power right now because of the uh, disruption of the pandemic. But labor doesn't want to dismantle capitalism. Um, Stan, no, some uh, do. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's another show, Stan. Um, <laughs> Last week, I uh, the biographer of John Steinbeck on the show. Steinbeck, of course, in the 1930s, wrote a series of remarkable books about the plight of the white agrarian underclass. You're calling for a similar response, I guess, to what's happening broadly. And, and the book talks, you, you're quite an expert on the land and how we need to change agriculture. I do another show called Regenerate, and I've done a number of interviews with organic farmers and activists, people like um, Joel Salatin, uh, Isabel Tree, who is uh, a pioneer of rewilding. How much can agricultural reform, uh, rethinking the kind of the, the donut economics of people, of, of theorists like Kate Raworth, how, can, how much can that help us build a new foundation for a global economy, a, a, a fairer economy and a better economy for the environment, of course. A transformation of agriculture is uh, is absolutely uh, essential. And the the great thing about that is that even if there were no accumulation of CO two in the atmosphere, even if climate um, was not a, a big issue at all. 
the, all the things that we need to do to um, to agriculture to um, you know, uh, to deal with the climate emergency are things we should be doing anyway um, to in order to uh, stop degrading the earth soils and and waters and to stop uh, you know agriculture is a huge source of uh, distinction uh, of extinction of species so we we need to um, uh, do all of that um, and and in in doing that we we will also help store more carbon in, in the soil and so forth but um, a lot of the people who are I mean, everybody in, in, in many uh, uh, sci uh, scientific uh, disciplines uh, are, you know, they're writing grant proposals all the time saying, okay, you do, uh, you know, fund me to do uh, this kind of research I'm doing anyway, and that will solve the, uh, that'll store zillions of tons of carbon and, and solve everything. Yeah, but so uh, we, revolutions don't happen through grant proposals. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but Lenin I but, didn't write a grant proposal in, in Zurich in, yeah. in, in 1916. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. I, I'm curious, Stan, on the, the generational front. It seems we've had a number of shows about how generations are seeing this very differently. I made some perhaps rather unkind remarks about, and I'll probably get accused of being an ageist of the of, of the age of people like John Kerry, uh, Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, perhaps even you or I. This crisis is bewildering, I think, for the new generation, for younger people. Um, I've been very intrigued by Richard Powers' new book, Bewilderment, which is about this crisis. And in Bewilderment, Powers suggests that wisdom now lies with the young, with the innocent. It's a sort of new crusades of, of children. Um, you're a bit dismissive in the book of, of crypto. What is your, which, which has become one of the vehicles for young people to sort of articulate their faith in fundamentally changing everything. Do you agree that, um, that, the, the, the challenge is a generational one, and there is a need in this moment of truth to hand over the baton of even people like Chomsky to younger leaders, younger thinkers. Well, that's exactly what um, Noam Chomsky himself told me in that uh, recent interview. He said that um, you know, the, the generations that uh, we have, you know, we old geezers have put um, put the burden on and who are going to suffer the most from this, no matter what happens, are, are, are the ones who are um, have the, the will and, and the ability to finally um, change our uh, civilization in a way that will um, not keep uh, doing the damage that we're doing. And, and since you mentioned younger people, it was interesting that in 2019 right before uh the pandemic so this wasn't a pandemic time response when um gallup asked uh was asking people do you think um socialism would be uh improve or improve our uh, country and make it worse 43 percent of americans said uh, that they would uh, prefer 
socialism. You know, that was 43, 57% uh, of people of color said that and 58% of young people. So it's, it, the tide is, uh, is turning, I think. The tide is turning. Are there particular <laughs> leaders that you have faith in, a new generation of leaders? Um, uh, Parag Khanna was on the show talking about how people are moving now, a new generation of young people. We had Adam Serber on the show, an African-American essayist writer. You note in the book that he's very articulate when it comes to matters of uh, the African-American community. Are there particular, particular thinkers, politicians on the left of a younger generation who you think represent this new thinking? Um. Yes. <laughs> and don't um, say Bernie Sanders, because he's no. too old. Yeah. He's even well, older than you and I. Well, if we're, we're um, it's safe we just talk about um, uh, members of Congress, for example, the um, you know, Ro, Ro Khanna and Pramila Jaipal, and uh, there are a, you know, a, a number of uh, uh, folks in there who have suddenly, things like, um, uh, taxing the rich and, and redistributing income that were, you know, you know, five, 10 years ago were just unthinkable in the Democratic Party. And, and, and they're you know, talking about um, all of these things and you know, universal basic services. And so um, uh, we, there is uh, something happening. The problem is our very uh, ossified um, governmental structures and electoral structures are um, yeah, and almost we designed on and on about this. Um, <laughs> yeah. We could talk about universal basic income, Stan, which you mm -hmm. touch on in the book. We could talk about profound political reform, which you touch on perhaps uh, citizen assemblies and other ways of rethinking the federal political system in the United States. But I want to congratulate you on the book. It it, it triggers a lot of Thank really you. interesting conversation. You've ca you've captured the uh, the zeitgeist, Stan, the path to a livable well, future, and you want so. to fight <laughs> climate change, racism, and the next pandemic. It's just out. It's by one of my favorite publishers, uh, City Lights, the great bookstore in in uh, North Beach in San Francisco. Uh, so congratulations, Stan, on Thank the you. book. Well, what else should people be reading? Uh, in these momentous times where everything perhaps is back on the table? Well, I just recently had the opportunity to read a, a manuscript of a, a book that's going to come out earlier, early next year that I um, would urge everyone to read. It's by Aviva Chomsky. The title is from Beacon Press. The, the title is, Is Science Enough? 40 and this, uh, and this is... Um... She's more than just the daughter of Chomsky, but she is the daughter of Chomsky, right? Right. She's a professor at Salem State University in She's Massachusetts. Carrying the Chomsky and banner, uh, the, the the Chomsky and banner into the new century. <laughs> that that's right. And in this book, it, it, the subtitle is 40 critical questions about climate justice," and and that's what the book is. It's forty. To, and I I was nodding my head all the way through it. 40, uh, 40 questions of the most and central questions, and she, she has a good answer to all of them. Well, that's great, Stan. I have to get a, a Viva uh, Chomsky on the show. Um, you'll have to introduce me. Stan Cox, the author of 
uh, the path to a livable future. Thank you so much, Dan. Mm. Keep fighting, keep demonstrating, keep throwing your verbal bombs. We need Thank them. Keep well in Kansas. What's the matter with Kansas? Uh, you may not be on the same page as Thomas Frank, but you are, I think, articulating the same kind of radical populism that... Um, that Frank uh, also supports yeah. and articulates. Thank you so much, yeah. Stan, and congratulations again on the book. Yeah, thank you, Andrew.